have your Bibles or your phone or something, we're going to be in the book of Joshua this morning. So you can open to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 7. Um, but just hold that there for a minute because we're going to go through that uh, in a moment. So we're, we're working on this series called Spoken. And uh, in a storytelling God, and when we sat down um, and talked about what we wanted this series to look like, uh, I think Jim came up with a better title for it because our, our working title for it was um, Crappy Stories of the Bible, where we looked at stories that people didn't normally think were, um, were great stories. They're not the stories like Noah and the Ark, and they're not... But we looked at stories of like rough people who were going through a hard time and, um, and, and then how God worked those things out. And so, um, but I love, I love what Jim did because he said, you know, these are stories and we want to talk about how God is a storytelling God. And I think that's an important concept for us to grasp the idea of God being a storytelling God because when we look at the Bible overall, um, a lot of times, I think we get so bogged down trying to pick out individual stories that we forget the overarching story of the Bible and what it's trying to tell. So, um, so there's a very important term that I learned probably about six years ago, uh, and that term is meta-narrative. Everybody say meta-narrative. Okay, meta-narrative. And, and what that means is, what is the overarching story? And so even though the Bible is full of thousands upon thousands of stories, and we're going to look at one of those thousands of stories today, um, it has an overall story that God is trying to tell. Um, and, and then there are just a bunch of subplots. So, so who's seen Star Wars? Okay, who's seen original Star Wars? Okay, who knows who Boba Fett is? He, he wasn't the original. Trilogy, the original trilogy, just to me. The original, okay, so Boba Fett. Okay, so, so what does Boba Fett do? What is his role in Star Wars? He's a bounty hunter, okay? Who does he bounty hunt? Han Solo, okay? Well, probably other people, but primarily for the story's sake, Han Solo. So Boba Fett is, he's kind of a cult character. Like, he has a cult following, and people love um, Boba Fett. There are t-shirts with Boba Fett and all this kind of things. But is Boba Fett the main character in Star Wars? No. Is he the main point of Star Wars? No, because Boba Fett's subplot is not the meta-narrative of Star Wars. In the same way, in the Bible, there is a meta-narrative. Noah is a subplot in the meta-narrative. Abraham is a subplot in the meta-narrative. Um, the, the apostles are subplots in the meta-narrative. And a lot of times when we look at these individual stories of the Bible... It's great because even though we can learn things from these stories, even though we learn morals from these stories, and God shows us things about who we are in these stories, the ultimate meta-narrative of the Bible is, who is God? It's not even about us. And a lot of times, because of the way philosophy, especially uh, Western philosophy and um, the Stoic thinkers and the way those things influenced our culture— and even influence the founding of our nation and things, we always tend to think of things naturally um, in an individualistic manner. So, you know, how does this affect me? How does this apply to me? How does this... But ultimately, the Bible, when we, we hear that mentality with the Bible, but that's, that's not what the Bible is doing. The Bible is telling us 
who the nature and character of God is and who Christ is. And because of that, we can draw how that affects us. But the meta narrative of the Bible is who is God. So that's just, that's separate from what we're going to talk about today. But for the sake of our series, I think that's an important idea to always keep in mind. As, we, as you read Bible stories, as you read your, as you read the word of God, the first question you should always ask is, what does this tell me about the nature and character of God? Not even so much, what does God want me to be better at? It's, what does this tell me about the nature and character of God? So, um, the meta narrative. So today, uh, the story that we're going to look at is, is in the book of Joshua. And, and really this story, uh, when I talked to Jim several weeks ago about, about this story, this was kind of, as pastors, when we talk to you about things, a lot of times we talk to you about things that, that God is working in us, right? So these aren't areas that we've mastered. These are areas where, we see, where we're struggling or things that, that, um, that we, need to be, we need to be better at. We need to grow our faith in. And so today's one of those times where um, we're going to look at this one story and there's really kind of one concept that, that I want us to kind of take from this story. And it's something that God was really working in me. Um, how many of you believe in miracles? Awesome. Okay. Uh, how many of you have looked at the Old Testament and looked at the Israelites and thought, God, what a bunch of idiots that they didn't. Okay. Several, some of you aren't being honest because I think that all the time. Um, when I looked at the Israelites and we think about Let's think about the Israelites. Let's just, let's just go to Egypt. We won't even go prior to Egypt. Let's go to Egypt. And um, they're in slavery, and Moses comes along, and, and, and God uses Moses to, to free them. So what are some of the things that God does in sight of the Israelites to help them gain their freedom? He's, frogs. That's okay. This isn't rhetorical. This can be interactive. It's okay. Blood in the water. Um, death of the firstborn. And, and, and I think, huh? Locusts. I think, I like death of the firstborn because I think that's two miracles in one. Um, one, God killed all, well, I, it's a miracle. It's an act of God. But he killed all the firstborn. But not only that, he spared people because of the blood, right, on the post. Um, that in itself is a miracle. And so, so after that, so imagine you're Israelites, you've seen all these plagues happen, you leave, okay, you're on your way out, and then you're at the Red Sea, and then chariots are coming. Okay, and you know that, that you're about to get slaughtered. So what does God do then? Parts the sea. Not only does he part the sea, there's a pillar of fire that comes out of the sky. I always like one of my favorite movies is Prince of Egypt, the animated one. Because I think it, it, it's like this giant cyclone of fire that is keeping the, uh, the Egyptians at bay. I don't know if it was like that, but that's really cool to think about. right? So there's this pillar of fire. He parts the Red Sea. They cross. Then they're like, okay, we're hungry. We don't have any food. So what does God do? There's manna from heaven. And then he sends quail. And then he provides water, fresh drinking water. And then, uh, and then on top of that, uh, the Israelites still groan and worship another god. And, and I, I remember I used to always think, man, these Israelites have seen all these incredible things. And they forget that quickly about God's goodness. And they forget that quickly about God's faithfulness. And, and I think a lot of times we look at them and we think, they're so dumb. I'm not going to be like that. That's, that's not how I'm going to be, right? And, and so 
one of the things that, that, that God was working in me is, is how quickly I had forgotten his faithfulness in the past. Um, so we're going to read, we're going to read Joshua three. And, and so I'm reading out of the ESV. And so what, what's happened is, um, Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader. Moses just died. So this is, this isn't long after Moses has died. Um, and they are about to cross into the promised land for the first time as the Israelites. They're about to cross the Jordan. Okay. And so the Lord said to Joshua, today, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. So one man from each tribe. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and then it says in parentheses, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Okay, So the, the river was really high, it's overflowing, as soon as the priest had been, it says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and who's flowing down, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing uh, over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from my people, from each tribe of man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And this is, this is key. So he says, And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of people of Israel, that this may be assigned among you when your children ask in time to come, What do, these, what do those stones mean to you? Then they, shall tell them with, then they shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be, the, shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. We can stop right there. So, so basically what, what's happening is the Israelites are crossing the Jordan. And God says, send the priests with the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the priests step in, right, the waters stop. 
And so the waters, it says they kind of wall up at the top. So that's kind of an interesting image. It's like the parting of the Red Sea all over again, right? Like God's repeating a miracle almost. But he, he parts the rivers of the Jordan. The priests stand in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant while all of the Israelites pass through. And then after they pass through, one man from each of the 12 tribes comes back to where the priests are in the middle of the river, and they pick up a stone, they take it on their shoulder, and they pull it out. And they set it. And it says that that they set these stones and that these stones exist as a memorial for the people of Israel. And further on down it says they built an altar. Right? Joshua built an altar. So they take these stones and they build an altar. And, And really, the pinnacle of today's message, the one thing, it's not even so much a message as it is a question. But what altars are you building in your life? There are several places in the Old Testament. So this is one. Um, Another was when uh, Jacob saw um, the stairway to heaven. Not the Zeppelin song, but the... uh, he saw the stairway, stairway to heaven, and, and he says, man, this place is special. And he builds an altar there to commemorate that place and remember, right? And then another is um, whenever the, uh, the Israelites are fighting before they cross into the Jordan, they, they fight the, uh, I think they're the Hezekites. And, and Moses stands up on this hill, and while he's standing up there, he's, he's holding his hands up. And every time he holds his hands up, it says the Israelites prevailed, right? They're winning the battle. But then he'd start to get tired. His hands would go down, and then the Israelites would start to lose. And so they sat him on a rock, and then, um, and then they, Aaron and Hur each took an arm, and they held up Moses' arms. And the Israelites won the battle. And after that battle happened, uh, it says that Moses built an altar to the Lord, uh, and he named it something in Hebrew I can't pronounce. That, but it means the Lord is, our, the Lord is my banner, Right? And so altars biblically kind of serve two purposes. One, they're for sacrifice, right? You sacrifice something on the altar or they're in memory of something. And so in this instance, what Joshua is doing with this altar is he's taking this altar and saying, we need to remember what God did. That way when my children and my children's children and my children's children's children look at that pile of rocks and they say, what, what's that about? I can come and say, man, God was so good. You won't believe the day that the river was split and the people crossed in and we finally started to grasp the promise of God. And so for us, right, 3,000, 4,000, however many thousand years later, The question is, what altars are we building? Because the present gets really fuzzy. And the future gets really fuzzy. And and we have, just like the Israelites, a tendency to forget God's faithfulness towards us. And, and I don't just mean salvation, right? Because we, we try to make a point of singing about salvation every week. Of, and, and we still need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of our salvation. We need to be reminded of what God and what Christ has done there. But even more than that, there are constant 
things that God blesses us with. In, in James 1, it talks about how every good and perfect gift is from God. There are good things in our lives that come from God. And so often we, for, we forget. We forget what God has done. And it's, not, um, and it's not just because we're forgetful people, right? That's not really an excuse. There are... A lot of times we build altars, but we build altars of bitterness. We don't build altars that give glory to God, right? We build altars to the things that were done to us, not done for us. And we build walls against other people because we've been hurt or we've been betrayed or so-and-so wronged me, or I got took advantage of here, or so-and-so cut me off, or so-and-so said this on Facebook, or so-and-so. And we can point to our past, and we, we can look at our family issues, and we can look at our relational issues, and we can look at how we were raised in our parenting, and we can look at, you know, all the people who did harm to us. And it's, it's really easy for us, and really easy, Christian or not, in modern-day culture, to point and build altars to things because we want to remember the things that hurt us, but we don't want to remember the things that help us. And so we have an easier time remembering those things over there. I was listening to a podcast this week, and they were talking about contemplation and the importance of contemplation in the Christian faith. And um, and they took it. They took it from all different angles, like what does it mean like when, when Paul talks about meditation and what Christian meditation is and what non-Christian meditation is, and it's going through all these things. But one of the most interesting things that, that they said was that um, in neuroscience, they find that when negative thoughts go and neurons go, that, um, that something in our brain latches to those that those negative thoughts are magnetic and they just latch super easily. And all of our emotions and all the things that stem from those, it's so easy to give into those because those thoughts latch like that. But they say that positive thoughts, positive thoughts are like, it's like they've been oiled down in Crisco, right? They're slippery. They, they, things don't stick as easily. And so they say it's literally a, literally and figuratively a stop and smell the roses. That whenever we think on the things that are good, whenever we think on the things that are beautiful, whenever we think on the things that are pure, whenever we set our mind and we really feed ourselves those things, that's, it says, they said you have to do it for a good 15 seconds. But when you think on those things, that's where the good things start to sit. Right? Um, Celine and I went to Hawaii earlier this year, and being on that beach and watching the sunrise over Kailua, and it just being, all you hear is the waves, and there's a few people out there like running with their dog, but it's kind of quiet, and we just got to sit there and contemplate the beauty and the glory of God, and, and that feeling, even when I think about that moment, like, it takes me back, and I think, you know, I spent a lot of time contemplating while I was there. That's probably why I feel so good about it now, and I remember it so well now. But I have a lot of bitter things that I've had to work through. I've had a lot of bitter altars I've had to tear down. And so, so for me, the question I had, and, and, and when, God was, when God was working in me, this is the story he brought up, because he said, Remember when they grabbed the stones and they built an altar to remember? You need to figure out a way to remember the things that 
good things that I've done. And so, um, really this came out of our whole home buying process. <laughs> and I know, you know, I've talked to a lot of you about, a lot of you are familiar with the process we went through and, and things like that, but um, over the last couple years, there have been a lot of things where If it wasn't for God, I don't really know how things would have panned out. And um, and so, give you some examples of just just from my life of things that that I've seen. Um, I moved to Dallas to go. I gave up what was probably a full ride scholarship to college to go into a ministry internship. I had to pay for. And. In the midst of that, I was like, why? I I did it out of obedience. But when I look back on what God did and the way that he used that to establish me in ministry, to teach me things about my character, to teach me things about um, servanthood, to teach me things, following the course I followed and being obedient was way better probably than taking that scholarship. Um, A couple years ago, um, Selena and I got engaged and I got laid off. I got laid off two weeks after we got engaged and we're planning a wedding. And, uh, and I didn't know where money was going to come from. I didn't know how I was going to, I didn't know how the wedding was going to go. I didn't know any of these things. And, um, and I remember thinking God came through and somehow financially we were doing better than we were when I was working full time, <laughs> partially because Selena's better at budgeting than I am, but, but also just cause because God was faithful and, and also just because you as a church were so loving and giving to us. And you, it's one of the reasons I love this church. I'll, I'll never forget the day I drove to Selena's bridal shower and I saw how, how good everyone was being to my wife. And, and how good God has been to bless us with such a church and such great friends. And then, and then I, got, I got another job and I got laid off again. <laughs> And so I was like, man, this is intriguing timing. And, and, and so I remember thinking, you know, and every time something bad happens, my knee-jerk reaction, thankfully, just because of how I've been trained in certain ways, but I say, God will take care of it, God will take care of it. But a lot of times for me, when those things happen, it reminds me of, um, I think it's Mark 8, where God's talking about the priests, and he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God, that's hurts every time I think about that and apply it to myself. But through these instances, there have been times where I, I say, man, God will take care of it, but in my heart I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't think God's going to be here. I don't know what's going to happen. And sure enough, I got laid off. I picked up contract work, and then it was great because I wasn't going to get to go to camp that year. And we had we had people who we had kids who got saved at camp that year. And then while we were at camp, I got a call and got a job. And I'm like, God, just worked that out perfectly. Because I got to go to camp. Why did I doubt in the first place? And so through all that, um, and, then, and then on top of that, we had, you know, Selena's pregnant. We're having, we're having a, a boy. And, and I'll give you guys an example of some of the darkness. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> 
I'll give you an example of just kind of how the enemy works in me a little bit and how my heart works. But when I was younger, I made a lot of poor decisions relationally and the way that I interacted with women. And because of those things and because of, because of that history um, and, and because of what the Bible says about when you sin sexually that you sin against yourself, part of my fear, even to this day, was that God wouldn't allow me to have kids. And not only that, but God wouldn't allow me to have a son. And then when we found out that we're having a son, it's just God's mercy and faithfulness over and over. And so, so we get to this house situation, and we're looking and looking and looking, and we're making offers on houses. And at the beginning of it, I'm telling Selena, God's got us, God's got us, God's got us. And we looked for, it must have been six or seven weeks, but it felt like six or seven months. And, and, and I remember at the end of that, we had made like 11 offers. And we're offering ridiculous amounts over to try and get a house. And, um, and I come home one day after, it was a Monday after our last offer had been rejected. And uh, I'm sitting on the couch, and I told Selena, I was like, babe, I think we're done. I can't do it anymore. We're just going to rent another year. Um, we'll figure out how we do it with, with the kid, and we'll, um, we'll talk through that. And, we, and we, we call our realtor, and we talk to her. And while, while we're talking, like, we just talked to her, and Selena hops on my laptop, and she's like, she's like hold on. Let me, I'm just going to look. But the Holy Spirit just said on her and said, hey, go to Zillow, look for, look in downtown McKinney, which is where, where we got married, we did it a lot there, it's where we wanted to buy a house, but we never thought we'd be able to live down there, and, and it said, look at the coming soon, and so sure enough, we see this house, and it's coming soon, and, and for sale by owner, and so Selena's like, sweet, let's, let's see if we can look at it, or, and so we called the realtor, and I told our realtor, Taffeta, which if any of you need an awesome realtor, Christian lady who kept telling us God's got a house for you and kept encouraging us, and she was amazing. I called Taffeta, and I say, Taffeta, um, I was like, call this family, tell them we will make them an offer on whatever they're asking, sight unseen. We won't even look at the house. So she calls him, calls Michael, and, and says, hey, um, I have some clients that love to buy our house, and he says, he was, and he, she explained her situation a bit, and he said, you know, um, he says, somebody already looked at it today, and two people are coming tomorrow. Can you guys come tomorrow at, like, 630? Um, just because I don't want to go against my word. I'm telling these people they could look. And we said, sure, we'll go. And so we go look at this house, and we meet this family. And um, young family it had been their first home. They had a, a young boy who was probably 14 months old, something named Nolan, um, running around. And so we start talking to them, and they find out they go to a church in McKinney. They work with Young Life. They do a lot of mentoring. And they wanted to sell their home to a young family because the lady before them wanted to sell the house to a young family. And so we just, the whole thing, and then after we, we made an offer that night, they accepted the offer that night, and they said, we would love for our first home to be y'all's first home. And, um, and just the way that you guys want to use the house to bless people. And, and so... I looked at that, and I look at all those areas in my life where I think, man, what a doubter I am, or how forgetful I am. Um, 
probably my second favorite passage of scripture is Mark 9, where the guy is pleading with Jesus, and he says, my son's got an unclean spirit. Can you heal him? Can you fix him? And Jesus looks at him, and he says, anything's possible for those who believe. And the guy looks at him, and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And for a skeptic and a doubter like me, that's probably one of the most encouraging scriptures I could ever read is to know that I can come before God and I can come before Christ and say, Jesus, I need you and I know you've been there before and I believe, but please just help my unbelief. And so the thing that God convicted me of and the thing that, the the challenge I want to have for all of us is what are we building? What kind of altar are we going to build? And I'm trying to figure out a way for me to do something in my house or mark something. And Selena, I've talked about it. But I don't want to forget anymore the times that God has carried us through and the times that God has been faithful and the times that God has showed up. That it's not always in my timing, that it's not in, always in the way that I think it's going to go. But in the end, God comes through and he holds us and he carries us. And I know just as he's been faithful to me that he's been faithful to a lot of you. We have a whole book of celebrations back there so that we as a church can remember. The first question that Jim asks before he starts any staff meeting with us is what do we have to celebrate? Because we have so much and we don't want to forget the things that God has done. So how are you going to remember what God has done? I wish Nikki was here. If you guys don't know Nikki super well, I love Nikki because she's so small. She's such a small person. Um, But she's got like such a liveliness about her when you talk to her and you get to be around her. And if you don't know Nikki, and I asked asked Nikki if I could talk about her a little bit, but Nikki had cancer growing up. And part of her testimony is that she's been healed of cancer. Like God brought her through cancer. But every year she goes to camps and she works with kids who have cancer or who are in remission. And she's just trying to help out. That's one of the ways that she remembers what God did for her. Um. One of uh, Tina's son, Nathan, um, he has, I love it, but him and he's, his fiance, they both have tattoos. And, and you can be pro or against tattoo. I don't know where everybody's stance on that is. I'm pro, just so it's out there. Um, but but he has, they have a tattoo in Roman numerals of the date that they got saved to remember, right? And, and there are, I know woodworking is like making a wicked comeback right now in culture. Um, I know that, The Fixer Upper has made arts and crafts like really cool again. And so um, I know people hang things in their house all the time. One of the houses that we looked at when we were looking at houses had, they had taken a wooden plank and painted every place that they had lived and they hung it so they could remember every house that they had, right? And so I'm not saying we need to build altars of sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice has been made on our behalf. But what we do need to do is we need to become a people who build altars in our homes and in our families and in our church and in our community that we can point to them. And when people say, hey, what's that pile of rocks about? We can say, that's the time that God pulled me through this. Or that's the time over here where I doubted because my kid was sick and I didn't know how things were going to go, but God came through and healed him. Or that was the time that I was depressed, but God showed me the joy in my heart and the joy that I have and the things that I have, and he carried me through. Or that's the time that I didn't have a job and I didn't know how I was going to pay the bills that month, but for some reason the, the money came through. We got a check and God 
sustained us. I, there are so many times, even talking to Jim, where as a church, they didn't know how we were going to make it, and God came through. Our God is a good, good father. He's a good, good father. How, we're gonna we, how are we going to remind ourselves of that? And that's all today's message is, is Joshua, God told Joshua, get 12 guys, carry 12 stones, set it up so that when your children ask you, what is that about? You can tell them, God was good here. God was faithful here. And not only that, God will be faithful again. And God will be faithful again. And God will be faithful again. Amen?